So I guess before I start with my uh, prepared uh, statement, I do want to kind of look at how I got into this uh, project um, and into studying African-American history here in Montana. Um, I definitely owed a debt of gratitude to Kate Hampton, who is at CHIPO, uh, where I started working on this project in 2014, and certainly to Ken and his research, because that's been a significant help in me trying to figure out where and what stories I wanted to tell and how I wanted to tell them. Um, as I started working at the Historical Society in 2014 as an undergraduate at Carroll College, my goal through that internship initially and then later on as, uh, as my first job uh, in history was to kind of identify places across Montana where the Afri African American community, we could identify them and then hopefully find houses and buildings uh, that would be suitable for preservation. In that process, what I found was that, yes, there are um, certain ways that people think about the black community in Montana. What's most unique is the fact that actually so much of these places, so many of the, the towns and cities across the state, actually for a, a quite a long period of time held a very vibrant and uh, central black community in many of these towns. So part of my research at this point was not just to go into individuals uh, and looking into their houses and their family history, but I wanted to understand kind of the larger picture and what made uh, the history of Montana's African-American community unique and how it integrated with all of Montana's history and Western history as well. So doing this kind of work, one of the things that you do, and I've done some uh, walking tours with Crystal Allegria at the Extreme History Project in Bozeman, and one thing that on those tours, if I talk about African-Americans, uh, the biggest question which is asked on nearly an everyday basis is where did the black community of Montana go? And I'll be very clear here, I am discussing the African-American community, which really became established in the 1880s and 1890s. It lasted, uh, they were very connected with one another across states, or across the different cities in Montana. So from Helena to Billings to Great Falls, Anaconda Butte, these are actually communities that were, that were in a significant amount of contact with one another. Um, they knew each other. Many of the families, their children married one another. They held similar jobs and so forth. So it was a very distinct community that lasted for about 50 or so years here in Montana. And the question is, where did they all go and why did they leave? But where did they go is kind of a moot question. We can kind of track in some ways that they go a lot to the West Coast, to Portland, Seattle, during the interwar period to work in industrialized jobs that start opening up. Uh, many of them moved back east, many to California. But the real question which I had kind of set out to ask me, which was now my uh, the subject of my graduate work at MSU is to understand not just where do they go, but why do they leave? How is it that you can have a community that's established for half a century in a matter of decades, drop by over 50%, and then dwindle away to almost nothing uh, even by the end of the 20th century? That was the, the focus of what I wanted to look at. So today I won't necessarily be looking at World War I, but a key feature is that I will be looking at the World War I era, because 1917 is quite the ominous year for African Americans here in Montana. Um, 1917, and the decade that followed, was a time of special significance in the history of Montana's African American community. Historians who study these various communities across the state will no doubt note the substantial drop in the population that occurred during this period. To make sense of this larger, the, this loss of the larger black community across Montana, I think we tend to place the most importance on factors like the interwar period's rapid industrialization of the west coast and northern cities, 
and the tightening grip of the depression on the national economy, as well as factors like the Great Migration. So it is easy to imagine that such pivotal, pivotal moments in our nation's history were the primary, if not only, reasons that the black population of Montana fell by 50% between 1910 and 1930. However, the issue I take with this somewhat limited view of causation is that it begins from a point of analysis and draws a conclusion that removes the lived experiences of black Montanans and thereby their history from the narrative of Montana and the West. So I will explain what I mean by this. Black history in Montana is too often presented in such a way that African-American experiences become mere variations on social and cultural life in the West. Or they appear as characters in the African-American or strictly Southern version of history that has just been transferred to the West. It is seen as interesting, as new, and even as important, but not necessarily as Western, and thus separate. Montana and other Western states merely take on the mantle of stage or a theater where black history takes place, indeterminate of Montana's distinct history and the unique stories of its people. Much like the Chinese population, because the black community did not largely remain past mid-century, with the exception of communities in Billings and Great Falls, uh, we tend to view the African Americans here abstractly as sojourners, whose history ran parallel to but did not intersect with the lives of Montanans during this period of economic turmoil and change. So our task today then is to place black history within the same framework as that of white Montanans during this time to show how these seemingly separate narratives align, intersect, and fuse into a pivotal moment in Montana history. To do this, I have intentionally focused on a well-known piece of Montana's past, the failure of thousands of homesteads following the drought and economic recession in the late 19-teens and early 20s, and followed that's those statistical conclusions to better understand the exodus of Montana's black community from Helena during this same time frame. In the early 20th century, only a handful of black Montanans, as Ken mentioned, were, lived on a homestead. Instead, however, most uh, lived in the, cities, uh, in the state's seven or eight largest cities. They worked in service jobs as laborers, porters, maids, attendants, and so on, or for themselves in small business uh, as owners or professionals such as restauranteurs, doctors, grocers, retailers, and in other enterprises. So immediately a gap has already seemed to form between the history of Montana and homesteading, for instance, and that of the black community simply by their sparse participation in that system. The question I chose to ask, beginning from the assumption that black history and Montana's history are not separate narratives, is does the data truly suggest that the crash of the homesteading boom in 1917 had an adverse effect on the black community? I, I think immediately historians and students of Montana's history consider this question, which they may never have considered before, and imagine that yes, the crash of a main economic driver in Montana and the subsequent depression likely caused an adverse, an adverse conditions for all Montanans, including the African-American community. So my paper today explores two issues. First, what does the data actually say? How did this crash directly affect the black community? And then following this, and more importantly, how and why did the black community become so vulnerable to these effects in the first place? So to answer these questions, I use three very distinct historical theories which contextualize all of my research into black history here in Montana. And so I think it is important to briefly give an introduction to each. First, I discuss settler colonialism. Settler colonialism is a theory that settlers colonize a region through the settling of the land. Moreover, settlement takes place through a necessarily violent process of indigenous land appropriation. 
opposed to traditional extractive or commercial colonialisms, such as Britain and India or the West Indies. The interaction of whites and indigenous peoples do not turn on labor, but instead on access to the land. So for the purposes of my research, it is also important to note that settler colonial states, because of the structural nature with which they are predicated on the elimination of native populations, will inevitably aspire to whiteness. The most poignant examples of settler colonial societies today are seen as Israel, Australia, and the Western United States and Canada. From here, I try to understand the history of black Montana as one taking place within this ongoing social structure. How should we study black history in a region that was built upon a broad social promise of whiteness? You may actually be more familiar with this kind of historical analysis than you think. Um, consider the ways that communities like the Irish, the Slavs, and Mormons all came to the region as non-white populations and then conformed to ideals of American whiteness once they were in the environs of the West. Due to the color of their skin and the legacy of slavery, however, African Americans here could not hope to do such a thing. Black history is therefore one that places its own agency and aspirations against the workings of the social formation that sought to create a white society. The ongoing process that worked toward the whitening of the West is one that I call ruination. However, the history of black Montana shows that ruination was at best fragmented, staggered, and applied unevenly. That being said, today Montana, both by the total percentage of its population and total residents, is the least black state in America. And thus we must consider that the ruination caused by a settler colonial project was at least in this respect the most successful here. So the third and final piece of theory which helps explain why racial ruination was so devastating and why this largely takes place in the 1910s is called is the concept of precarity which is essentially the same as precariousness. Historian Anna Lohap Singh, an anthropologist and historian of the Anthropocene, observed that when writing about a history whose defining characteristic is ruination, one must be diligent in pursuing new arts of noticing. Singh argues that such an art of noticing requires the historian to think through precarity. Precarity, she writes, quote, is a condition of being vulnerable to others. Unpredictable encounters transform us. We are not in control even of ourselves. Unable to rely on a stable structure of community, we are thrown into shifting assemblages, which remake us as well as our others. We cannot rely on the status quo, and everything is in flux, including our ability to survive. Thinking through precarity changes social analysis. So in many ways, Singh's precarity thesis is the foundation for what I use to understanding the history of Montana in the 1920s and 30s. Events that occur, shattering the status quo, sending Montana's ecological, economic, and cultural stability into flux, will highlight to what degree that black Montanans were living in a ruinous state of precarity. So that following that black history is not separate from other seemingly disjointed narratives in Montana's past, it is useful then to begin with an event that first glance does not appear to be connected at all to the ruination of African Americans or Montana at all. In 1909, on the hazy docks of the Drom River in eastern Norway, 18-year-old Sven Bausti boarded the Christitania board for El bound for Ellis Island. He had spent his entire life in the port city of Drammen before coming to America. It took seven years for his naturalization to be approved, and in that same year, 1916, Sven applied for 160 acres in Shoto County, Montana. That following February, the young Norwegian-American proved up on his piece of north-central Montana and earned his patent. 
that the land was his free and clear. For many immigrants coming to America from the 1860s onward, Sven Bausti represented the ideal coming to America story. His timing, however, could not have been worse. In 1917, the year that Bausti approved up on his patent, the rain stopped falling from Montana's big sky. Along with Sven, thousands of families were forced to leave their rural homes and start fresh in new places. In 1910, 64% of Montana's population was rural or living in a town of 2,500 people or less. Following the drought of 1917 and 1918, the crash of the homesteading boom and subsequent statewide depression in the 20s and 30s, the rural po population dropped to only 56% after World War II. While the six largest cities in Montana grew at a rate of 16% from 1910 to 1920, the black population, however, in those same cities fell by 28%. The rise of the urban population in the state's medium-sized towns, such as Bozeman, Haver, Miles City, Kalispell, Livingston, and Lewistown, also saw substantial growth of about 10%. And in those same communities, the black, the black population fell by 34%. So a substantial number of people moving to Montana's larger towns and cities during this time were individuals not very much unlike Sven Bausti. From the research I have done into, into these demographic shifts, shifts I estimate that roughly 25% of the homesteaders who can no longer work the land for a subsistence level profit relocated to towns within Montana and took up new jobs, often as wage laborers or in service industries. So returning now to Sven Bausti, this rather unlucky 30-year-old, he found work in Great Falls as a porter for the Park Hotel in 1921. This was a profession. How, this was a profession in Great Falls and Helena and other larger cities that, had, that was common for black men to hold at the time. However, I found no incident in which an individual in my data who lost their homestead moved to a city or, job, or town and took a job in a profession that was previously held by a black man or woman caused, it, caused them to be laid off in any kind of direct causation. And though I cannot definitively say that this did not occur, it has struck me that perhaps this is not the part of the story that really matters. Consider the story of Jefferson Harrison of Helena. After a 27-year career in the military, Harrison worked at the Broadwater Hotel and the Montana Club for years as the pillar of Helena's black community. Harrison was laid off in 1917, at which point he worked for little pay as a night watchman at Fort Harrison, where he likely still had connections from his service days. However, by 1922, money had become too tight, and Jefferson and his wife Louise were forced to leave Helena for Portland. I do not think we should wonder if someone like Sven Bausti had directly or indirectly taken work that Harrison had relied upon to support his family for the preceding 22 years. But rather, I think we should question why it is that Jefferson Harrison came to live in such a state of precarity. The crux of this history is not that white homesteaders moved to cities and took work that traditionally had been that of the black community. The mere, this is just a mere demographic reality. Instead, the vital piece of Montana history here is the fact that Montana, as a society, valued men like Sven Bausti, in his ideal Nordic whiteness, as more valuable members of the community than men like Jefferson Harrison, who had lived there for two decades and carried the flag as a color sergeant in two separate overseas wars. The history of Montana's black community is deceptively expansive and endlessly vibrant. By no means were all African Americans solely employed in the service sector. Uh, upper middle class professionals and business owners in the black community, they too felt the precarity, however, of their world here in Montana. 
The challenge to the labor of working class black Montanans weakened a community that provided social and economic support to its more affluent members, whose livelihoods often relied on the sustained patronage of black clientele. That clientele could no longer support them when the labor strife swept industries like the copper mines, smelters, railroads, and timber, where black men did not enjoy the protection of unions. Even before the drought and depression and the depression hit, black place identity across the state was regularly challenged. The color line which separated white from black in other parts of the countries did not exist in the same way here in Montana and the West. Uh, with a few notable exceptions, schools, restaurants, public spaces, and neighborhoods, and the exception of neighborhoods is in fact Great Falls, as Ken had pointed out, um, they, were they were not largely segregated. This was not due to any noticeable lack of racism, but instead, because to separate something off for the black community would have been tacitly suggested that they possessed some level of ownership, however unequal. I argue that in the West and in Montana, which began as this settler colonial project, acquiring American Indian land for the purpose of white settlement, the social structure did not allow for separate but equal. Instead, its goal was total exclusion. The whitening of the West, as the term has been called by historians, came about by keeping the black community in a state of precarity until a time in which conditions, such as a drought and thousands of unemployed farmers, could signal the beginning of the end for black Montana. As I have said at the beginning of this presentation, though, however, ruination was, at best, fragmented, staggered, and applied unevenly. The history of, of the black community, from my perspective, then, is the, one of an active struggle against these ruinous forces. Black history in Montana did not end in 1917, or 1930, or any other date you can name. The historian Anna Singh, who argued that we should think through precarity when dealing with histories of ruination, also said that histories of ruin are not enough. She adds, quote, if we end the story with decay, we abandon all hope or turn our attention to other sites of promise and ruin. Promise and ruin. Instead, Singh argues that new stories with new narratives will inevitably spring from the debris of ruined landscapes and societies. So on that note, I do not consider black history in Montana to be a story of people who lived in these closed communities shut off from the rest of the state. Instead, I see the lives of Jefferson Harrison and Sven Bousty to be intertwined and fused. And so Sven Bousty's story, as well as our own, is also not separate from the ruination that sought to remove the black community during this time. It is all part of a complicated racial history that in so many ways has come to define the history of Montana. Thank you.